Uh, hello, dear people. Um, reporter cast is upon us for July 2023, and our guest is coming from Ukraine. She's an advisor to the Ukrainian Finance Ministry, and she is among the people who drive the campaign to exclude Russia from the financial services system because of the atrocities its forces are committing in Ukraine and to a lesser extent in Africa. And she's also an executive at Highgate Group, a consultancy in London. And in the years before the total war started in 2022, she worked as a communications official in Kiev under Finance Minister Alexander Daniliuk, who I interviewed in 2017, I think, or 2018, when he nationalized Privat Bank, the largest bank in the country, uh, which had also been caught up in, um, in dirty money fraud and all sorts of tangled political interests of controversial oligarchs. Our guest's name is Valeria Melnichuk, and clearly we have a lot to talk about. Welcome and thank you for making time. Hello, Matei, and thank you for inviting me. Happy to talk. Thanks. Um, so I'll just start with with um, uh, the, the the type of question I ask all all my guests, which is uh, just talk a little bit of, just to talk a little bit about you. How did you end up doing this type of work, and why did you choose finance? Why running campaigns, communications, and consulting specifically? Well, I'm usually not very good about talking talking about myself, uh, but forced into this self-inquiry, I can say that um, I've always been interested in change, how change can happen, what can bring it about, and how to sustain it from rolling back to old ways. Throughout my career, I've been on kind of all sides of the policymaking cycle as a policy researcher, media, civil society, government, and now private sector. I worked as a policy researcher with international organizations in Central Asia, became very disillusioned with their impact on the ground and moved on to become a policy researcher and journalist in Kiev. I joined BBC Monitoring and worked on Ukrainian TV station and covered the war in Ukraine in 2015 when the invasion of Donbass was still fresh in everyone's minds and it was still important to the world that people were being killed and wounded every day on the front line in the heart of Europe. However, as time passed and I felt like I was reporting on the same issues day in and day out without any visible impact, reporting on killed and wounded every morning and every evening, reporting on arms movement around Ukraine, corruption, law drafts. And I do have to mention that I was part of Ukraine, Moldova and Belarus team and had to listen to Lukashenko's six hour press conferences and harvesting visits to farms and that would drive anyone crazy. Um, Anyway, I decided I would make the most impact if I go and help the reformist parts of the government at that, at that time that were in power, uh, that were doing some important things, pushing policy change through, through the parliament and implementing reforms. So that's how I joined the Ministry of Finance of Ukraine and eventually ended, ended up heading its communications. Um, and after I moved to London in 2019, tired of politics and drained as a, a few months at the pace that the government was working at that time in Ukraine, um, a, a month felt like a year, probably. I mean, it, it 
after after two years I felt like it's it's enough I don't want to hear anything about law drafts I don't want to go to parliamentary committees or hear really anything so I joined Highgate Advisory because of the work that we do that is complex and fascinating issues around the world that we help untangle that are intellectually stimulating and most of the time I can see the impact of my work in policy behavior or situation change and I've worked in, across different jurisdictions, Lebanon, Zambia, Sri Lanka, um, some companies in Uzbekistan, Switzerland, I mean, all, all over UK. So that, that, was, um, that was the journey. Right. Well, that's quite interesting. And um, it seems to be a little bit different from the typical story you get from a journalist who turns to PR, which is, you know, they just want more money. I suppose you're making a little bit more money as it is, but it, it sounds like it wasn't just about the money. But anyway, this is an interesting an interesting topic about um, the relationships between journalists and uh, communications officials. And um, well, journalists who are a bit more jaded than me would say you're a flock and um, not always a friend or an ally, but... Um, since the invasion of Ukraine and especially the full invasion last year, a lot of people in your line of work have been very useful in helping Ukraine and helping journalists and really just being on being on the right side of history here, um, getting the getting the message across from the victims of this invasion and helping journalists reach the places they need to reach to to do proper reporting. So, I just wonder: is this? Um, is this a, a new thing and a change in in how journalists and uh, communications people work together, or uh, or not? I I mean it's it's a it's supposed to be a provocative question, isn't it? Um, I think that well, first, what I do is not really about PR. We de so we devise strategies for getting from point A like usually a really complicated situation to a point B, some sort of resolution or improvement. And yes, working with media is often part of the strategy because media is really important in forming people, in influencing opinions, influencing policymakers, but it's not the only, the only component. So I support like debt restructuring campaigns, policy and behavior change campaigns, litigation and dispute resolution. And doing that by working with intelligence firms, politicians, business, media, civil society. So that, that is kind of like a, a more broad response to PR versus what I do in, in my daily job. However, specifically speaking about working with media before and after the full-scale invasion, I don't think I noticed a difference in the sense that it's always easy to build rapport and work effectively together when a situation is very clear. Like the, in this situation of Russia's blatant barbaric invasion, it's very clear who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. So we aren't, I mean, I don't really envy the, the, the people working on the Russian side, like when you have to convince journalists that white is black and black is white and journalists aren't idiots. I think that's the that's the the worst approach you can ever take in, in trying to work with media is assuming you can convince them of white is black and black is white. Like this is just like drop it right there. So, um, so I think that there there are no really shades of gray in this situation, and we're all working towards the same goal of stopping the war, saving lives, and and helping to hold perpetrators accountable for the crimes that they've done because it's socially important for 
not just Ukraine, for the world. So I think that in this regard, the, the, the essence of the work and the way we work hasn't changed. It's just that there's a lot more work, a lot more coverage, because it's the situation is unprecedented. Right. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, I suppose it is a it is a good story, and it the, the story kind of sells itself. You don't have to do a lot to convince journalists to write about it because everything is so clear, like you said. But um, with Privatbank, I suppose that's another example of a of a pretty clear cut story. And you were right at the heart of it, weren't you? You were on the inside with with Daniliuk and the former central bank governor, Valeria Hontareva, who was also a guest on this podcast a while ago, and you nationalized it. And uh, that was um, that was a, a big thing in, in, in the history of, of European banking, I would say, but certainly in, the, in Ukraine and um, in the history of, the, of, of your country. So can you give us some color, what it was like, what, what things looked like from, from your perspective back then, you know, was it full of was it full of adrenaline? Were you getting much sleep? Were you afraid? I know Valeria Hontareva had some threats and even you know some attacks against her and and her family. So, uh, you know, just just give us some give us some memories, please. Um, just a kind of a disclaimer that I have to be very careful talking about private bank case because it's still ongoing. And I have not been following the most recent legal proceedings closely. So I'm kind of it's more of recollections of what it was like then. When Ukraine was nationalizing Privat Bank, the stakes are very high. I mean, the largest bank in the country with a count of over half of the adult population in this bank. Uh, if something was to go wrong and there was a serious run on the bank, the entire financial system of the country could have disintegrated. I mean, it didn't and it couldn't because professionals were professional people were in charge of the process, but it was always on the back um, of everybody's minds. Um, however, it was more dangerous to let the problem of the largest bank in the country with a 5.5 billion USD dollars uh, hole in its balance sheet to go unaddressed. So we really had no, not much choice but to address the issue. Um, on a personal level, we spent we spent a few nights sleeping in the cabinet uh, office, and my husband had to bring containers with food to the entrance of the building as we were too tired and too busy to even order food deliveries. Um, I I had to produce a cartoon overnight for TV stations to explain in very simple terms what was happening with Private Bank and why everything would be all right. And I've never really made cartoons in my life before. Uh, I just suggested as an as an idea of something to make something simple to go on TV to calm people down, and I got it as a task. <laughs> so all professionals, like all professional producers, gave me deadlines and budgets that just wouldn't work because we needed it the next day. Uh, so I decided to give it a go. I mean, it was very basic, but it it went on air and it, it did it did the job. Um, ed, but adding to the myriad of other things and tools that were being used to explain to people what was going on, why the bank is in safe hands, why your accounts are unaffected, your money is safe, and so forth. Um, in terms of the fear, I don't think I was afraid, but I know, but I know that the minister and his family were moved to a different residence uh, from their house because the as as there were safety concerns. Um, 
I know that everybody was so you we were on adrenaline but we weren't we weren't really afraid we were just kind of moving from one task to another to another but I know that the 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 key decision makers did have heightened security around them right um, yeah that's uh, that's really quite interesting I suppose one day they will make a film about it or a, or a documentary at least um but listen, if if you can uh, please send us a, a copy of the cartoon you made, I'm going to post it with uh, <laughs> when we publish the podcast. That would be really nice. Um, just um, you know, just so we can see your handiwork. <laughs> I'll, and, I'll um, dig it out. <laughs> and um, well, be- besides Privat Bank, there were many other banks closed. There was a really deep clean of, of the whole sector. A lot of banks were obviously a lot smaller than Privat Bank, but still dirty and fraudulent, and they were choking the economy. Can you talk a little bit about those? Any particular examples that were, uh, you know, standing out and um, and needing, uh, needing closure? So, I mean, Privat Bank is the best case, uh, emblematic, um, and... Uh... I cannot really talk about other cases because I wasn't involved in the cleanup. It's the National Bank of Ukraine that was leading on the work. I know definitely that a few oligarchs lost their lost their pet banks because they they were using them to either launder launder money or siphon money out through refinancing schemes um, and so forth. So I mean, can't really talk about specific examples other than Privat Bank, where I was involved in and, and where the bank now argues in courts that previous owners committed fraud on epic scale, misappropriating close to $2 billion. Uh, what I can say, though, is the fact that the Ukraine, that the Ukrainian system or that Ukraine cleaned up its banking system in 2015-17 helped its banking system to withstand the shock of the full-scale invasion. Uh, people have been amazed that Ukraine's infrastructure is working, banks are operating, and sometimes even more efficiently than some European banks in, in countries where there's no war. Um, salaries are being paid, trains arrive on time, etc., etc. The reforms Ukraine has been implementing since 2014, I, th- I think, are a big part of this story, along with Ukrainians' resilience and determination to survive and thrive. Right, yes. Well, certainly, certainly the trains in Ukraine seem to be working a lot better than in the UK, unfortunately. Uh, but um, we'll see. I, I, I'll get into this a bit later. But for now, I, just just on the banking reform again, um, I have this uh, this idea that um, without the step to, to clean up the banks, Ukraine would not have been able to, to resist the invasion the way it's, the way it's resisting. And um it's also um be, not not just the economic benefits but closing the bad banks gave people hope that it's possible to fight corruption that corrupt uh, or allegedly corrupt oligarchs uh, can be stopped from from controlling the economy to to the extent that that they control the banks and uh, i just wonder is is this going too far or, or is, do you think it's it's true and um is it a, is it is it wrong that Ukraine hasn't done the same cleanup in other sectors? Maybe. So there's no doubt that those reforms and subsequent reforms that built up on them made Ukraine stronger and gave hope that change is possible. 
um, and and change is possible in in at fast pace as well. I'm not sure those specific reforms in the financial sector really impacted people's will to fight for their country, though. I mean, let's be honest, very few people in the street actually follow what's going on in the banking sector. Better right. local governments, decentralization of resources, better roads, higher salaries, etc. is something a lot closer to their hearts because they see it in everyday life. Right. Um, but I think it's also... It's also identity. When someone is trying to deny your identity, deny your existence as a separate person, attack your home, rape your wife and kill your child, you don't really think about the banking sector. You fight back. So I think the two things are, I mean, they're complementary. The, the confidence in the country, where the country is going, because Ukrainians were confident that the country was going in the right direction and they didn't think Russia was going in the right direction. We wanted to stick with Russia. So on those fundamental kind of value-based levels, we we were prepared to fight. Right. So I suppose the the banking reform was a, a consequence of this of this willingness to reform rather than driving driving the the willingness to fight, which is yeah. which is fair enough. Um, and on Privat Bank today, you said you didn't follow it lately, but um, you know the oligarch behind it, Ihor Kolomoisky, is in the news all the time. He's still caught up in sanctions and multiple types of litigation. Uh, the new management of Privat Bank is still trying to get money back from the the previous owners. Um, is there anything you would say is is like the most important thing in, in on this subject to watch? To watch out for um i think so Priva bank brought its case to uk courts and it's a testament to ukraine's fight against corruption in pursuit of funds illegally siphoned out of the country i'm sure the bank's previous owners will be looking for ways to try and prove their own case in the uk justice system using able services of london lawyers However, as you and I and London lawyers know, English law is used as governing law in almost half the world for a reason. It's not an easy exercise to try and manipulate a UK court. Um, so I think Privat Bank has a competent professional team and I'm sure that they will argue their case and, and well and they will achieve their objectives. Right, okay. Well, let's see. Let's see how it goes then. Um. I want to change the subject a bit. You've been running this campaign or, or or you've been part of the team that was running this campaign on behalf of the Ukrainian finance ministry to get Russia put on the blacklist at the FATF, which is the international organization against financial crime based in Paris. Um, I feel uh, this didn't happen, by the way. So um, so Russia didn't, in the end, get put on that blacklist alongside Iran and, uh, and North Korea. But um, I, firstly, I would like you to give us a bit of uh, a bit of background on on how that went and how the campaign went and what's uh, what's going to happen next. Um, but also, do you think Putin got a bit lucky that the coup by Prigozhin? against Putin happened basically a weekend after this vote at Fatov and um, a day or two later after the coup Putin went out and said look we've been paying for Wagner for years so he took ownership of Wagner and implicitly he took ownership of all the atrocities 
you know, unspeakable things, beheadings. They're proud of it. They they share it on social media. They have this thing with with the sledgehammer, which they use the sledgehammer to murder people and share it on social media. And they sent a sledgehammer to the European Commission. So really, like uh, extremely barbarous and uh, and and terrible things they they're doing. And Putin just took ownership of it. Putin said, "We've been paying for this." And uh, he said it on record, he gave numbers, he was looking through spreadsheets. So it's pretty undeniable now, despite, you know, them denying it very strongly until a few months ago. Now, would that have had an impact on, on the Fatov decision, do you think? So there are, there are three questions in this one, aren't there? One is about the campaign in the run-up. Two, about what happened and why the decision wasn't made or what the decision was and why and and the and the pre-gorgian story so i'll start unpacking them one by one um first it's the working group that, that i'm coordinating is the working group with ministry of finance financial investigation intelligence uh, unit civil society experts lawyers so it's a, it's a multidisciplinary group of different ukrainians and international experts driving this um, and uh, this was indeed the Fatah decision was indeed disappointing, but expected um, because because it's just the a lot a lot of politics is involved. Despite Fatah saying that it's a non-political organization, you have to have a consensus in voting, and and you have all the different countries. Some of them are still voting with Russia in the UN Security Council, in the UN General Assemblies, and so forth. So it's it's not just an 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 isolated Fatah issue. Um, so what we were arguing was that Russia has always been a high-risk jurisdiction for financial crime. And since the invasion of Ukraine, these risks have only increased. Fatah has been strengthening its response. And just for those who, for a little bit of context, is that starting with condemnation and escalation and escalating to the suspension of Russia's membership in February 2023. Back in February, Fatah stated that Russia violates its principles and um, of mutual respect and cooperation. It also, the Fatah also warned all jurisdictions about Russia's sanctions evasion attempts and malicious cyber activities emanating from Russia, and said it was concerned about reported arms trade with UN sanctioned jurisdictions, basically with Iran and North Korea. Fatah didn't say that, but that's, that's what they meant. Um, Ukraine's argument here was very simple and is very simple, is that Russia is a threat to global financial security, not just to Ukraine. It violates Fatah standards and should be blacklisted. It is unprecedented for, for, Fatif, uh, for a Fatif member to be suspended or blacklisted, but unprecedented circumstances require unprecedented response. So, I mean, here you could ask a question, is Fatif only good for blacklisting small countries on the periphery of the world? Isn't it supposed to protect global financial security, no matter the perpetrator's size or political influence? So that's a question that is there, lingering in the air especially that since the membership suspension in February, Russia has not stopped its malign behavior and it continues to violate Fatah standards and create serious risks for global financial security. So I'll remind the audience that Fatah is a watchdog tasked with three things, help counter money laundering, terrorism, and proliferation financing. Now, if you take that mission and put it against the facts, 
Russia places nuclear weapons in neighboring Belarus, trades weapons with blacklisted Iran, financing terrorism through Wagner and other proxies. There are other smaller organizations um, in Russia that are recognized as terrorists. Cooperates with North Korea on its nuclear program. Launches massive cyber attacks on Ukraine, but also on other states. Uses crypto to launder dirty money. These are attacks on global security, which FATF is supposed to be protecting, was created to help counter these threats. Moreover, there are such things that FATF looks at as predicate offenses. And since the invasion or since the membership suspension in February, Russia has committed more and more of those, like acts of terror creating risks for thousands of civilians. And Kahovka Dam is one of the examples, which not only created humanitarian disaster, ecological disaster, but has a potential to complicate maintenance of Zaporizhia power plant. Uh, there is another threat of nuclear terrorism. Russia continues to use, uh, hinting that it might use nuclear weapons and also creating this pressure and tension again around nuclear power plant um, in Zaporizhia. Proliferation financing. Russia has authorized the transfer of nuclear weapons to Belarus in May. Um, they started transferring and you already can hear irresponsible rhetoric from Lukashenko walking around his tractor, whatever, uh, fares, talking about the bombs that he's got, how much, how they are much stronger than the ones landed, that landed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and, and it's just unbelievable. Um, then it's the, it, and just to be clear, it's the first transfer of nuclear weapons outside of Russia's borders since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Russia continues to trade weapons with UN sanctioned jurisdictions, what Fatah highlighted, but we all know it's it's already common sense, common knowledge that they are buying weapons from Iran. They have sold weapons to Iran. They have sold jets. There are reports that they were buying ammunition from North Korea and potentially even some clothes for their army from North Korea. That is more of reports rather than a proof fact. The, the, the arm trade, arms trade with Iran is a proven fact. Cyber attacks in 2023 increased intensity of cyber espionage attacks on government organizations in at least 17 European countries. Intensifying efforts to circumvent sanctions. Russia is using the and, and there are two kind of components to it. One is using virtu virtual assets to bypass anti-money laundering checks and circumvent sanctions that way. And the other is to devise all the different intermediary networks and so forth for dual use goods to and and they're still working on different ways to circumvent sanctions. And then state-sponsored human trafficking, and human trafficking is one of the FATF predicate offenses. In March 2023, so post-suspension of the FATF membership, the International Criminal Court indicted Putin and other officials um, for forceful deportation of Ukrainian children from the occupied regions. And this creates serious risk of human trafficking. And multiple international organizations have highlighted that we don't know what is happening to these children. The risk is really of human trafficking is high. And finally, increasing levels of corruption and state capture. Although everybody was talking about corruption in Ukraine, is still talking about corruption in Ukraine, corruption in Russia is unprecedented. And we don't talk about it because Russia kills, kidnaps uh, their journalists, their investigators. There isn't really a discussion or an investigation but that's kind of that's not the argument we're using for FATF for FATF you can know you know that in March or maybe like the one of the facts that in March 2023 
Russia formally left the Group of States Against Corruption, Greco. The Council of Europe's Moneyval expressed concerns over risks of grand corruption emanating from Russia, including from the nexus between Russian leadership and the organized crime. And the Prigozhin case is a, is a, is a good example. I mean, some countries uh, designated Wagner as terrorists. Others, like the US, designated them as international, transnational criminal organization. Um, but but this is this is one of the examples. And and yeah, I mean, about your, your question about Wagner, um, it was actually happening Friday evening, I think, when the reports started coming in, that's the day when Fatif announced its decision on Friday. And in the evening or at night, the reports started coming in about something's going on, Prigozhin, and it wasn't very clear then. But then on Saturday in the morning, it was already clear. It was everywhere on the news, BBC, FT, and so forth. And we actually joked about it in our working group, working group chats that weekend that I was, I was still in Paris on Saturday and woke up to all of these news. And um, we were joking that, I mean, first, one would hope that Fatah then could see that Russia had ineffective systems of preventing terrorism and organized crime financing in the country. And then it had also ineffective systems of money laundering and all of that, because you could see that, what was it, three billion rubbles in a, in a, tra- in a truck parked next to Prigozhin's office, like, how how did that money get there? What were the sources? Where did it go afterwards? Is it from a gold mine in Africa? You know what, what I mean? And then we also had the joke internal of like, it, we think Putin must realize now that he would have been better off sticking to Fatah standards <laughs> because he wouldn't have this issue. Um, but to speak in serious term, terms, I don't know, know if, um, if that would have changed the Fatah plenary outcomes if if the coup happened the weekend before, um, because it's always difficult to kind of look back, look at history and guess. Uh, but it would certainly be a development to to factor in. And and given how it ended, it's 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 not really clear. I guess had it had it progressed even further, it would be even a stronger argument. But even then, um, just the fact that this organization is there, and now the the that Putin admitted that they are financing it. So even if countries don't recognize it as, and the UN didn't recognize Wagner as a terrorist organization, they did. They do recognize that it's organized crime, a criminal group, organized criminal group, um, and that is part of Fatah mandate as well. So I, yeah, I, I think it, it. He was lucky. It happened after Fatah plenary happened. Right. It, so um, at least it made th- it would have made things a little bit more awkward um if if not uh, if if not really terminal but um i think it did make it awkward even even the way even the way it is at the moment and and just the fact that he came out admitting and giving the numbers and how they're using basically they're using state funds to spread death and destruction across the world and and wagner committed numerous war crimes in ukraine but it also supported assad regime in syria committing numerous atrocities and war crimes in mali central african republic sudan libya it's not just about ukraine that's the main argument that russia carries risk to the global security not to ukraine only and, and an interesting point about Wagner being financed from state budget is international businesses. So we talk about international organizations, we talk about governments, but international businesses that continue. So any entity dealing with the Russian jurisdiction is essentially at risk of contributing to terrorism and organized crime financing because 
because you pay taxes. International businesses that continue doing business and paying taxes in Russia are indirectly paying for Wagner at the moment, even if they don't want to, even if it's unwilling, unknowing, and so forth. And then international businesses, so in financial institutions outside of Russia, dealing with Russia-sourced money, are also at risk of unknowingly participating in Wagner-related illicit activities, such as laundering of illicit funds, like the example with this truck full of money next parked next to Wagner offices. The, this money they obtain through different criminal activities in various countries. Um, and, and all of these risks are real. They're serious. It's not about sanctions. It's not about moral exit or anything. It's about serious risks of unwillingly, unknowingly being implicated in financial crime. Um, right. And I would anticipate that more and more trouble to those businesses so, will come. Exactly. That's you, you covered most of the next question already. But oh. what is what is there to be done if you're a bank, especially if you're a sort of mid-sized large bank with a lot of connections, some of which lead back to Russia? I suppose, especially the Kremlin, especially where where you where you put a lot of money in in the Russian treasury through tax or even you know. In, deal with state-owned enterprises in Russia if you're Russia still can't really be avoided if you're in commodities if you're in sort of prime materials that sort of thing shipping so what is there to be done what um, what, what can the private sector do what can regulators do and here I'm not speaking on behalf of the Ministry of Finance this is here I can talk about so I'm also on a steering committee of B for Ukraine coalition, a coalition that of many civil society organizations, the goal of which is to cut Russia's access to economic resource to prevent it from having resources to finance its war. And one of the one of the work streams there is to get international businesses out. Um, and the other is to close loopholes on oil sanctions, gas sanctions and so forth. I mean, the radical position would be blanket rule. Like that, it is an, an unprecedented situation, both for the destruction that is happening, but also for risks risks that businesses are exposed to. Um, and businesses must leave Russia. It doesn't matter what they what assets they've got there and so forth. Write them off, go to court. Like you have, you have plenty of different options. Uh, if you haven't been smart enough to do your due diligence and risk assessment before, um, in terms of, in terms of commodities, it becomes political in terms of sanctions and the EU and 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 so forth. But I think everybody is starting to think that they need to close off the loopholes. They need to impose more stringent sanctions i mean essentially we need to we need to stop russia from having all of these resources to finance its war right. and um yeah well that's interesting i remember a time when the bank of england and the fca were getting very worked up about potential iranian sort of undercover activity in the city of london and i wonder if russia will end up in that situation at some point i think it's it's going that way because uh, uh, this admission by Putin, obviously he said it because he wanted to save his dictatorship in the very short term. So he, he had to, um, uh, to, to to present some sort of information to, to the Russian people, firstly. 
but I think it really undermines him because over the years Putin was uh, seen in the West as a, as a factor of stability. Look, he's a dictator. We know he occasionally poisons people with Novichok. Occasionally, even in our countries, he does it. But he holds things together and, um, you know, it would be mayhem and pandemonium without him. But he can't make that argument anymore, can he? And um, the the Ukraine invasion and using Wagner in the way that he has done and then admitting he paid for it just puts him well beyond the pale. I think I haven't heard anything official yet, but I think it's just a matter of time before people in in the West and in London, you know, officials and regulators just decide, look, Putin is Wagner and Wagner is Putin and we need to draw the right conclusions from this. So that's, um, you know, that's, uh, I suppose that's a good thing in the scheme of things because it's, it's the truth coming out in the open, but um, it's really kind of hallucinating as well. Um, it's it's really uh, really shocking. So anyway, the the next question was uh, again changing the subject a little bit. Um, it was about a bank in Hungary called OTP, which is still quite active in in Russia, and which um, the Ukrainian Anti-Corruption Bureau and correct me if I'm if I'm getting this wrong, but the Ukrainian Anti-Corruption Bureau put it on a list of it's National Anti-Corruption Prevention. Agency, I think. Right. And, and yeah, Nappi right. And uh, Bureau. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, they put it on a list of, of companies that are uh, sponsors of the of, of, of the war against Ukraine, uh, because because obviously it's it's carrying out activity in, in Russia at, at a large scale. And all, also, apparently, it has some facilities for soldiers and so forth. Um, now, Hungary said that it will never approve aid for Ukraine again as long as this this bank remains on the list. And then I asked this uh, this institution in Ukraine what uh, what the response would be. And they said the the bank is staying on the list. Uh, the truth stings, you know, we're 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 just going to to leave it there and no uh, no change. So I wonder how how do you see this situation? Well, since international and national institutions are not able to effectively address the problem of international businesses continuing business in or with Russia and moreover effectively contributing to the war effort, Ukraine has no choice but act with the means and tools that it has. I know from conversations in the banking and financial industry that, the, that these designations are making the lives of these businesses a bit more difficult. So the tools must be working to help stimulate their behavior change. Um, in terms of geopolitics and Hungary's position in this situation, but in this war more broadly, it's a whole another conversation and the Hungarian government doesn't look great in it. Um, so I think that the bank is staying on the list. There are other banks that are oh, and um, there there are other banks that are on the list as well, and other organizations, other entities will go on the list as well if if they don't leave Russia. Right. Okay. So there's no there's no there's no negotiation to be to be done. The the Ukrainians are holding their uh, they're holding their position. 
Um, well, I, just to be clear that I'm commenting on this more because I'm not involved with that work. So I'm commenting on this more knowing the situation and also working on the campaign with the civil society. Uh, right. So you're not you're not speaking as a as a representative of no. the of the finance ministry. Okay, I'm 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 taking the point. And um, so there's, there's this is another wild theory I had. Um, after the war, um, I'm I'm not really a huge expert in sociology or future futurology or whatever, but uh, um, I think Ukraine is going to win this uh, sooner or later. And after victory, there will be this period of flourishing of like growth, investment, arts, and Kiev will be the the capital of of Europe in a sense you know spiritually politically in terms of innovation philosophy and all of these things like Paris in the in the fifties a magnet for for intellectuals and and writers and so forth and inventors although um, politics in France in the fifties wasn't really stable um, you know you had Hemingway and all the other great people going there and, and loving it. So I just wonder how you see this, because others are a little bit more pessimistic about this. And they're saying, you know, after the war, Ukraine's Ukraine's work is only just beginning and stuff like that. So I wonder, is there is there cause for hope at all that, that you know, there's going to be a, an explosion of goodness, a, a flourishing of, of good things? I really hope so. I, I, I do. I am convinced we will win this war um of course depends at what cost because every day of of protraction is taking lives and creates destruction the true answer is that i haven't thought about the end of the war in more elaborate terms really than just taking a vacation and starting a renovation in my kia flat which we bought right before the invasion and we haven't even got the keys yet um i think many of us are moving from one urgent action point to another to bring about victory as soon as possible. But you're right. I mean, it's it's a good idea to dedicate some space and time to thinking about what, what comes after war as, uh, once it's over and we win. Um, I think there will be a little bit of both. There will be boom and growth um, that, that you are talking about. Um, and and the but but there will be the continued fight for better institutions, more transparency, better laws, etc. So it won't be it won't be easy. Uh, one thing is certain is that Ukrainians will have a lot less tolerance to nonsense. Like the sense of justice is heightened to maximum levels, and people will not take lightly to corruption, lack of justice reform, any abuse of power, and so forth. Because then the questions will arise: What have all these lives have been lost for? And I think everybody understands that. Every you know, in all institutions, or at least I hope so. I mean, maybe some judges don't, but they they have been arrested already, or you know, um, and and maybe others are learning their lessons looking at that development. My hopes are high for Ukraine's recovery and reconstruction, but I still think that we should concentrate on making sure Ukraine, Ukraine wins the war and receives everything it needs to do so to reduce casualties and destruction as well. Aircraft, long-range missiles, air defense systems, ammunition, and more armored vehicles and tanks. So it's good to think about, I'm sure there will be positive developments once the war is over, but I do think we also need to concentrate on, on winning and making sure Ukraine wins rather than Ukraine prevails. Mm. Because those are two different things that people are talking about. Right. Explain that, please. So Ukraine prevails means 
to us or like I hear it as Ukraine doesn't fall apart and disintegrate. It doesn't necessarily mean Ukraine is within its proper borders. Russia is neutralized as a threat and we are in safety so that we can grow, develop, thrive, re- recover and reconstruct. So, so Ukraine, that, that's Ukraine wins. Ukraine wins, that means Russia loses on the battlefield. Ukraine restores its lawful borders, restores its sovereignty, and has very clear security guarantees, whether that's, from, whether that's um, I mean, NATO membership, but also Russia's I'd use Putin's terms actually, like denazification, demilitarization, and whatever else he was saying there. But that, that those are all things relevant about Russia actually at the moment. Right. Okay. And to make clear, I'm I'm talking about as Valeria, not as the Ministry right. Of Finance. So that's not the position. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, for me, I just I I can't imagine how uh, this this. Uh, you know, cleaning up of Russia and cleaning up of the of of the murderers at the top would be able to 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 happen w- without participation from the Russian people. So, you know, at some point the Russians need to need to step up, and uh, in my view, they they need to be encouraged to step up somehow. You know, non-violently. I'm not saying there should be another attempted coup or anything like that, but you know. As long as enough people oppose it and they they come out to the street and stuff like that, I think the the regime will just fall. It's it's the way of things. But um, well, let's see. Let's see. Uh, let's see. The main thing is that, as you said, you know the the Ukrainians win the war and they keep their country and then they rebuild their country. Um, what else are you working on? You you said you were you were working for Zambia. Is that something you want to talk about? What what's happening there? Um. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating project. I'm I'm heading the Highgate team that supports the Minister of Finance of Zambia, um, in their debt restructuring um exercise. We have just had a big win. Zambia has restructured part of its debt, the one with official creditors, so the official creditor committee under the G20 Common Framework. Um, and Zambia is one of the cases that actually gives hope to other countries in distress, debt distress. Um, and there was a and there is a looming debt crisis in in developing world. And 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 the fact that Zambia has has moved ahead in the process because at some point it wasn't clear how things are going to develop and whether there will be a solution. But the fact that Zambia did move, um, it gives hope to other countries that there is light at the end of the tunnel. If you if you do things right, if you engage with your creditors, the, and, and it is one of the examples where it shows that international institutions can work effectively sometimes as well. There can be cooperation despite all the differences between some of the stakeholders like China, US and, and EU and so forth. So all came together and found a solution and agreed on debt relief for Zambia. So that's uh, that's that's encouraging. Um, so a piece of good news, uh, which happened on the same day as FATF announcement. So it was it balanced out my frustration. Um, so yeah, that's that's one of the one of the projects uh, I'm working on. 
have several other projects that are related to the war um, against Ukraine, but I can't really talk about them. The one I can talk about is the B4 Ukraine coalition, a coalition of civil society organizations that I'm a, I'm a member of the steering committee there, whose the objective is to help drain Russia's war budget by blocking access to economic resources, basically. This includes incentivizing Western businesses to stop doing business in, in or with Russia, incentivizing policymakers to close loopholes in the sanctions regime. We have just published a report yesterday, which found that international companies contributed $3.5 billion in profit taxes to the Russian state budget in 2022, and indirectly propping up Russia's war machine. Um, and there's some interesting contributors and in some of the largest taxpayers are international in Russia. So, Well, that's interesting. And um, of course, the number would have been a lot bigger before the invasion. So a lot of them did pull out. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to see how the ones that are staying are, uh, are justifying it, except, of course, that they want to continue to make money and they don't care about the consequences. Um, and what else? What, what are your future plans? Are you staying with Highgate? Do you want to go into, back into Ukraine, maybe to run for office or something like that? Or what, what are you thinking? That is a very good question that makes me, you know, in, in the race of from one thing to another, <laughs> make me stop and think. Um, the war has impacted my planning horizons. So I don't really think about, you know, like along those questions that you get asked job interviews, where do you see yourself in 10 years or where do you see yourself in, in five years? I work from one urgent task to another. My plan is to continue working on projects to help stop the war for the moment. Um and 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 continue working on interesting projects with sovereigns and, and and corporations that help make a difference. I think I will see where I'm most effective working on those objectives, and 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 that's what's going to drive my choice of whether I'm staying with Highgate, going somewhere else. At the moment, I'm staying with Highgate, um, and 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 I see that I am being effective at Highgate, doing all of these things and achieving, um, achieving these objectives. Right. Okay. Well, that was a very, uh, a very professional reply, wasn't it? And with that, um, with with that, um, I'm I'm bringing this to to a conclusion. Really, thanks very much, Valeria. This has been fascinating. I really appreciate your time, and um, I hope you uh, you get what 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 you're looking for. I hope Ukraine gets its its well deserved victory and. Um, uh, thanks 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 for everyone uh, watching and and listening to this thank you thank you for interesting questions and for your support for ukraine